Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. As we dive into God's word, I want to tell you about something we often do on Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, uh, we try to spoil Jan, but oftentimes she spoils us. And it can be a feast, including all kinds of desserts. She might bake lemon meringue pie. She might bake uh, chocolate pecan pie. She might bake uh, apple crisp. And she might run down to JoJo's and get an ice cream pie. And all of these desserts are there after the meal. We usually have to wait an hour because we're just so full from the meal. And then she'll say to me, what would you like? And I'll say, yes. And yes means I want a piece of everything. I want to taste it all. And so here's the question. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus, my relationship with Jesus, are we tasting all of Jesus? If you think of Jesus as being one piece, one whole pie, oftentimes we'll only take one piece of Jesus, but not get the whole Jesus. For example, even in this series with encountering Jesus, what we've already studied is the idea through that Jesus is a transforming Jesus. He's a redeeming Jesus. Remember our study of Nicodemus. He's a healing Jesus. He's a sending Jesus, and he's a forgiving Jesus. But here's a slice of the pie that maybe you haven't tasted well. He's a nurturing Jesus, what I like to call the mother heart of Jesus. Yeah, you heard me right. The best of a mother and how a mother nurtures and provides and protects and all of this is under the banner of love. Uh, That's the best of who Jesus is for you and me. And to understand this, I want to draw your attention to our passage today, which is Matthew 23, verse 37. Just one verse. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Fascinating verse. I'm going to unpack the context for us, but what I want us to see is the mother heart of Jesus. So Jerusalem, Jesus says it twice here, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And here we can imagine Jesus looking down from the Mount of Olives at this great, beautiful, wonderful city. But it's not just a beautiful, wonderful city. It's a prophet killer city. There's an aspect of Jerusalem that Jesus draws our attention to that we have to deal with because it's keeping us from discovering the mother heart of Jesus. So Jesus, as he looks back in the past at Jerusalem's history, they've been prophet killers. And as he looks to the future and considers the fact that he's about to be killed himself, crucified, That's what Jerusalem is. So let's think about the name Jerusalem. 
You might know that if Jesus was pronouncing this, as he no doubt did, probably in Aramaic, which is a sister language to Hebrew, he probably said it something like, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim. Now that is a beautiful name, and it's really made up of two words that when you combine these words, the first part of it is to be in awe or fear, and the second part is the word shalom that you and I know that speaks of peace, and that's why it's called the city of peace. But peace not in the sense of just the cessation of war, as you and I think of peace, and it's not just... The idea of peace, of tranquility, and the Hebrew mindset of peace was wellness, completeness, wholeness, and that's what shalom speaks to. In fact, in the ancient days, 2,000 years ago on the streets of Jerusalem and to this day on the streets of Jerusalem, they would not say, how's it going, dude? They would say, how is your shalom? How is your peace? And so this is the city that Jesus is crying out to, Yerushalayim, the city of peace, but the city that we are in awe of. So over history, Jerusalem began to build in its expectation as kind of the Camelot of King Arthur's era. You know, the the stories, the folklore of Uh, Lancelot and King Arthur and the Knight of the Round Table. It was all in Camelot. And and Camelot was kind of this fictitious city that was synonymous with what the Hebrews looked to Jerusalem to be. It was the city of hope. It was the city of wonder. It was the city of justice. It was the city of the best of human beings. And that's what Jerusalem is destined to be. And so Jesus looks at that city, but guess who's headquartered at the city of Camelot, Jerusalem? It's the religious leaders. Their headquarters is there, and Jesus is indicting them for being the prophet killers. We don't know of all the prophets that were murdered, killed. There's great stories right in scripture, the one of, Jer- of Jeremiah, who's persecuted greatly by his own people because he's speaking God's word. But what about Zechariah, who's actually stoned to death? And what about what's about to happen after Jesus, where Stephen in the city of Jerusalem is stoned to death? It's a murderous city. And Jesus here is pulling back the covers on Jerusalem. So what was wrong with the prophets? Well, the prophets, the prophets, they were kind of weird. They often dressed in in an abnormal manner, maybe had weird mannerisms. They didn't always come from the elite class. Isaiah did, but most of them came from a lower class. And they didn't come through the door that the religious leaders were expecting. And so they canceled them. They cut them off and they said, you cannot be from God. But what the prophets were really doing was pulling back the covers, exposing them for their, their fakeness in their religion. Now, if you look at this passage here in Matthew 23, what you see is Jesus goes through a litany 
of woes that he's pronouncing on the elite religious class of Jerusalem, these Pharisees, these scribes. The seven woes are, number one, you decide who's in your heavenly group and you cancel everybody who's not in your group. Sound familiar? That you argue to convert people to become like yourself and once they become like you they become twice in Jesus words twice the son of hell as yourself Uh, indictment woe number three you obsess over details and scrutinize all of these obsessive details but you overlook the big issues such as justice mercy and faithfulness number four you look good on the outside but you're rotting in the inside. The fifth woe, you keep appearances. Like, what do you think? The outward appearance, how do you think right? Do you talk right? We might add, do you vote right? But inwardly, you are always thinking of yourself. So you fake like you're thinking of everybody else, but you're really thinking of yourself. Number six, outwardly, you're spiritual but inwardly, you're dead man's bones. You're dying. And number seven, outwardly, you honor the prophets, but secretly, you've killed them. And you're about to kill me, Jesus. Now, those woes are for somebody. They're certainly not for us, right? Because we would like to think of ourselves as being picture perfect but they're for somebody. And these leaders, their high need, their highest need was to be right and to look right with everybody in their group and to cancel everybody who was not right like they were right. They weren't Jewish enough. They didn't use the same uh, language or come through the same door that I expect. Remember Jesus, what upset the Pharisees and the scribes the most about Jesus is Jesus hung out with uh, publicans, which were tax collectors and sinners. Some of them former prostitutes. And that just drove them nuts because they weren't the proper religious people. And we've done the same thing. Think of all of our backgrounds. They weren't Catholic enough. They weren't Anglican enough. They weren't Reformed enough. They weren't Baptist enough. They weren't Methodist enough. They weren't Pentecostal enough. They weren't charismatic enough. It just goes on and on and on. But what happens is we become loud. We become boastful. We become opinionated. And Paul talks this way to the Corinthians, remember. And we become right. Now, let me pause and just let you know that I'm not indicting you. Obviously, in any message, if the shoe fits, we wear it. But I'm the worst of sinners. I'm far worse than you. No matter what, how opinionated you are, I'm more opinionated. No matter how loud you are, I'm louder no matter how much you've researched all the issues that are important to you, I've researched them more. 
And I've been right in this last year about masks, about vaccinations, about protests, about elections. I've been so right that I've been wrong. Now, those are not what we normally think of as theological issues, but they become germane to our heart and who we really are. And here it is for the rest of the message. Are we receptive to the mother heart of Jesus? This last week, I was invited to a friend's house to just kick back and have a dinner. And as we were just eating at our friend's house, uh, because there were two pastors, myself and another pastor at the table, someone asked the question, how are we doing as we come out of COVID? And how are the churches doing? And isn't it awesome that we have all these online digital presentations of the gospel that are going out? And I said, yes, but my own opinion is I wish the church was in a better place. And they asked me, what do you mean? And I said, I, I expected the church... Uh, to become very broken. I expected the church to begin to cry out to God and how much we need him and how much we want him. But what I saw is the church becoming politicized and becoming so right and, and, and so hardened in the way uh, that we live in being darn right that I know the Holy Spirit doesn't move well among darn right people. And I was hoping for something else. The prophet Hosea called out to his people and he says, it's time to break up the ground that has not been plowed. To plow the ground. To become broken, to become open. Because it's time for the Lord to come and rain his righteousness upon me. I think we could be ripe for revival if we stop looking at what's wrong with everybody else and begin to open our hearts and cry out to Jesus about our own stinking hearts. And I include myself in that. So what's missing in me? How could Jesus come into my city and, and work in my life. What I've done is I, I, I picture for myself, if you could, this is gonna sound funny, but if you could picture the head, the iconic head of Mickey Mouse, you know, with this big round circle and then these two half circles that come out of his head for the ears. Flip it upside down and let the big circle be the kingdom of God. This is what we pray for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This big idea. And these two smaller circles, let one be you and let the other circle be the people you disagree with and maybe frankly don't like. Maybe frankly have canceled. And that could be theologically, spiritually, politically, socially, in any other way. You're right and they're wrong. So, what usually ends up happening is we take this big circle, we gradually shrink it down, and we make it so overlap our circle that we begin to think that Jesus votes just like me, he looks like me, he thinks like me, he dresses like me, and I am the kingdom of God. And it validates me 
in why I'm against those people, as opposed to realizing that Jesus, big kingdom, the Camelot, this idea that's so much bigger than this world and you and me, that it overlaps with some of the deals that are so important to us. But it probably overlaps with some of the ideals that are important to somebody else. And both of us have to be drawn away from our puny worldviews to the big idea of the kingdom of God. And that's my business. I'm not a politician. So I'm all about this big idea, the kingdom of God. But we tend to not make God bigger. We tend to shrink him down to fit in to looking a lot like me, thinking a lot like me. And Jesus says that that sets us up for missing what God wants to do. As you know, my dad just passed away and I was thinking about my dad because we had some uh, great controversies in our day. I came to Jesus at the end of the 60s, 69, and as you know, long hair, rock and roller, uh, doing things that was common in the culture. And I would say that our culture was way crazier, or at least as crazy as the culture we're living in today. It was free drug, free sex. It was irresponsible. It was dropout. And when it came to government, it was overthrow the government. Let's not just get rid of police. We wanted to overthrow everything. It was anarchist. And then, in our brokenness, Jesus began to move in some of our lives. Hippies becoming Jesus people, followers of Jesus. And guess what began to happen? The other churches around saw what was happening, and they began to indict the churches that were accepting these converted hippies into their church. They got to cut their hair first. They have to apologize for their lifestyle. They have to change that and that and that and that before we will agree that this is a move of God. And it was a great revival. It was a great work of God. And my dad, oh, bless my dad. uh, He struggled with me. He struggled with the church, which happened to be the first Calvary Chapel. He came And he wanted an appointment with Chuck Smith, the pastor. And I met, the three of us met together to find out if Chuck Smith was putting drugs in the communion to make people want to obey and follow the word of God. And Chuck just laughed. He said, no, this is is a work of God. But my dad struggled with that. And my mom too. She came home one day and finally said, you know what? I can't remember whether there was someone, some man in front of me that had long hair past his shoulders or not. I've been healed. I didn't judge anybody today. It was that brokenness that God used to move among the people. And if you study all the movements of of revival in history and in scripture, There's an inherent brokenness and longing. It isn't a crossed arm and pointing at who's wrong. It's rather opening our own hearts and saying, wow, it's me standing in the need of prayer. This was so hard for the Pharisees and the scribes, but it's what Jesus called them to. 
and he's crying out to them. If you asked yourself the question, how would we know if someone had been in the presence of Jesus, whether in devotion, whether in prayer, or in church, or some other, how would we know, what would be the fruit that they've been in the presence of Jesus? Number one, they would be humble. Because they've been in the presence of God. As Isaiah said, woe is me when he was in the presence of God. Secondly, they would know that they had been discovering the mercy of God and be merciful to others. And the third thing I think is is often, there's many things, but one thing that comes to mind is the sense of wonder that God is way bigger than I thought. And as I move towards him, the kingdom of God doesn't get smaller more into my worldview, but my worldview is sucked more into his worldview. The second part of this verse, this simple verse, is all about the mother heart of God. So now we've seen the negative side of the Pharisees that kill the prophets. But now listen, Jesus says, how often... I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. After this long list of woes, we expect Jesus to say, because of this, 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 seven woes, you are sentenced to hell. And literally, without cussing, to the Pharisees and scribes, go to hell. But that's not what he says. He says, you've been so wrong. But now, even now, I long to gather you under my wings like a hen. Now, I I would have wished you weren't used an eagle or or at least a hawk. But a hen? Like, cluck, 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 cluck. But this was a rural society that understood chickens. And one of the things that a hen does is it protects, it brews over, it... uh, it, it actually defends, but it also nurtures these baby chicks. And Jesus describes himself as having a mother's heart. Yeah. And he says, you have rejected me. Uh, you have perhaps hated me, but I still love you. And I want, and he uses this word, gather. The word here, let me pronounce it for you, episunagagain, episunagagain. And the word synagogue is buried in this. The word synagogue is an old French word that comes from this Greek word, synagogain, and it just simply means to gather. I love as we've been meeting outdoors during this year that we just simply called it the gathering because that's what synagogue was and that's what the church is. The word assembly is the same thing. It's, it's, it's a gathering and that's how the church identified itself. But we're not just gathering. We're gathering under the wings of Jesus, the mother heart of Jesus. And how did Jesus gather? Well, we know. We just read the pages of the Gospels. He said, follow me. Jesus said, come and be with me. He taught his disciples. He forgave the followers. 
He healed people. In fact, if you think through the Lord's Prayer, it's exactly what the Lord continues to do for us. Come today with your will and your kingdom in our life. Give us today our daily bread, which means provide for us like a mother hen. Forgive us our sins and protect us. These are all the things that a mother hen would do. So how would you know if someone has discovered Jesus? It's someone who's tasting of the peace of this pie. And we put our faith in this Jesus who so loves us that we lay down our arms. In the old Wild West, at least in our cowboy movies, we have the idea that when people came into the saloon, they were supposed to leave their weapons at the door. Now, the movies and westerns I watch, they still seem to have their guns. There's a big shootout right there in the saloon. But I'm told that in, in most saloons, they would have people park their weapons at the door so that they could protect all of the furniture and the beautiful bar and the mirror behind the bar uh, while all these cowboys were coming in and getting drunk. What a great idea. When you come into the presence of Jesus, it's not what's wrong with them. And it's certainly not how right I am. But it's discovering the forgiving mercy of Jesus. So he protects, he nurtures, and he loves us with this beautiful heart. I like to think about the protection side of Jesus. My mom, moms, I don't know how you are with your families and what the stories are told of you, but my mom was a wonderful nurturer, but she was a tiger in the neighborhood. And every kid in the neighborhood and every mother in the neighborhood knew that my little pint-sized mother, 5'3", was a force to be reckoned. And I specifically remember the time that there was this kid, um, we'll call him Peter, and he had a rubber knife, and it was his new toy. But he was in our yard, and he was throwing this rubber knife, which is, was pretty hard rubber, and he was throwing it at other kids, sometimes hitting him in the chest and sometimes hitting him in the side of the head. And one time... My mom was talking with Peter's mother. And they were having one of these neighborhood chats between mothers. And that knife hit me and then it hit my mother in the side of the head. My mother said to Peter's mother, because she wasn't disciplining her child. My mother said to Peter's mother, excuse me for a moment. Peter saw my mother coming and he ran and grabbed his tricycle. My mother grabbed him and his tricycle, picked him up, carried him to the sidewalk and says, Peter, you can come back into our yard once you learn to behave yourself. She walked back and there's Peter's mom standing there aghast that another mother has just disciplined her child. And she said to Peter's mother, now, Excuse me, what were you saying? Whoa. Yeah, that was my mom. I knew that anybody, a gorilla, a lion, my mom would protect us. But I also knew that when I was injured, my mom would be there. When I was alone, she would be, because she had a mother's heart. 
And Jesus has a mother's heart for you and me. Now, here's where it gets a little bit dicey. This is where you come into the story. Are you ready? This is the gift of wanting, of willing. Let me read to you the third part of this verse. That he wants to gather us, but he finally says, you were not willing. And there's the rub. We've messed up. We've killed the prophets. But even now, he wants to gather us. We've been darn right. He still wants to gather us. But he says, you were not wanting. You were not willing. Wow. Now, there's a play on words here. I want you to think about this. The play on words is about the word willing or want. In this passage, he translates it uh, two different ways, but it's the same exact words. The first occurrence is when he uses the word long. How often have I longed to gather you? That's the word willing. How often have I wanted to? That's what he's wanted. Then he uses the identical word to say, but you were not wanting. You were not willing. You were not longing. You see the contrast? God wants you, but we don't want him. He longs for us, but we don't long for him. He's willing for us, but we're not willing for him. Now, we're usually a little bit willing, and our willing and wanting is kind of like high tide and low tide. But Jesus is adamant that his wanting towards you and I, his longing for us, his mother heart for you and me is extreme. And now he says, it's your turn. What do you want? And the Pharisees and the scribes could have at any moment said, we want God, we want you. But they wanted rather to be right. And so they killed him. Instead, but the words that really penetrate my heart, and perhaps they do yours, is, but you would not. That's how it literally could be translated. You were not willing. You didn't accept the invitation. Jesus says in a similar parable, He tells us about a king that sent out all these invitations in the kingdom, especially the most important people and especially all the right people. And they turned the king down. And then he sent his servants out to get all the wrong people, all the broken people, all the needy people. And they were the ones that came to the wedding feast. And that's who I want to be. I want to be a person that wants him just like he wants me. And how does that happen? Usually doesn't happen with people that got it all. Usually doesn't happen that people that are always right. Usually doesn't happen that people with people that have it all together. It usually happens with people who are what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. When you look into your pockets, the pockets of your soul, what do you pull out? Are they full of stuff that we present to him and say, look how awesome I am? Or are our pockets empty? 
That's what it means to be poor in spirit. The pockets of our soul are empty. And revival happens. The spirit comes among people who are poor in spirit. So it's time. I think, folks, as we go forward, it's time. It's time for us to lose our entitlements. It's time for us to lose our self-rightness, not self-righteousness, but where the root comes from, the self-rightness. We're so right. It's time to lose our sense of who we are and discover who he is. My sister and I, this last week, as we were reminiscing about our father, uh, I reminded her of the story of how sometimes we would be disciplined and sent to our room. And, and then we would wait for our mom to come back into our room and, and ask us, how you doing? Do you know what you did wrong? Um, and there'd usually be a hug and a kiss, and then she'd pat us on the back and say, have, have a great day or whatever she said. We'd, she'd let the jail cell open. We could come out of our room and begin our day again. But my sister went through a phase where she was so right. She would go into her room and rock in her rocker and play with her doll. And she would sing the song, I hate my mommy. <laughs> I hate my mommy. And she was wanting to torture my mother with those words because she wanted my mom to feel sorry for disciplining her. She wanted her mom to feel like she did something wrong as opposed to, I'm sure I did many things right, many things wrong, but I'm ready to own my stuff. So here we go. It's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. And here's a piece of the pie that maybe you haven't thought about. Your desperate need for the nurturing love of Jesus. Not that you have it, not that you checked the box and you asked him into your heart, but today, and out of that nurturing love, it creates a compassion that you have for other people. It's the story of the prodigal son. Change the story of the prodigal son to be the prodigal Mom. The word prodigal means to lavish. And so you know the story of the prodigal son, how the prodigal son, you know, he goes out and lavish and spends all his money on all this stuff. And he comes up dirt poor. Now he's feeding pigs and decides to go back to his house. We'll flip the story around and it's his mom that sees him. Because the father in the story really behaves just like a good father or mother. And the father sees the son coming back and runs and kisses and welcomes him and fulfills the words we just studied. How I have longed to gather you under my wings. And the son is coming back to gather himself under the wings. And he wants to. That's the difference. Before he didn't want to. He had his dad. But before, he didn't want to. And now, he wants to. But as you know, there's another part of the story. The end of the parable is the older brother. 
and the older brother are the Pharisees and the scribes. It's the darn right people. And he's so ticked off that his dad is so compassionate with his broken, needy little brother. And Jesus told the parable so that the Pharisees would understand they got to become broken. Not that they need to go out and be crazy sinners spending their lives on all this stuff like the younger brother, but they need to know that they too need God's nurturing love. I'm going to pray for you, and as I pray for you and pray for me, I would encourage all of us to just let this be a time of brokenness. You're going to see on the screen a number that you can text if you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. It may be that you've never done it before. It may be that this is a recommitment. Or maybe you just want to tell me that, wow, I've been a scribe and Pharisee. I've been this darn right person, and I'm done. I want to be a person that comes through the door that Jesus is describing here, that I want the mother hand. I want the mother heart of Jesus. I need him. Because we only pursue what we need and what we want. How desperate are you for Jesus? So tax that number if you want to. But please follow me in prayer right now. Father, come into our lives afresh and anew. Lord, we hear in our mind the verse was written to Christians, not to non-Christians. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, because they want to, I will come in and I will eat with them and they with me, meaning we'll have fellowship. So Lord, as mature Christians, as young Christians, and people that are just becoming Christians, we open the door to you today. And we ask for your forgiveness for not wanting you. Your forgiveness for being so self-right about so many issues and shrinking your kingdom down to my little world. We ask you, God, enlarge our hearts and, and, and enlarge our eyes to see how much bigger the kingdom of God is than my perspective on life. And most of all, God, that you would free me up from having a heart like the Pharisees. Lord, I come through the door of needing you. I break up the unplowed ground in my heart, that you might freshly plant the seeds of the word of God and, and water my heart with the Holy Spirit, that there might be revival in me. I hear clearly today that you want me to come to you, and I respond and say, I want you as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.